Good morning. It is good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming and joining us here on uh, this first Sunday in June. Can you believe that it is the first Sunday in June? I don't know where this year has gone so far, but we find ourselves, and if you don't believe it's June, come back here tonight. When you see all those kids here, you will know that it is June and that it has come on us. I was thinking this week it was June uh, eight years ago, actually, when during vacation Bible school when I came just before I uh, assumed the position of pastor here at Ivy Creek. So this will be, help me, this will be my ninth vacation Bible school here then, I guess is the way that that'll work. And uh, that's, how, that's how I can always tell that June has come as we have vacation Bible school. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to be in Mark chapter 14. Many of you have been along this journey with us. We've been in the Gospel of Mark now for a while. Uh, we started Mark's Gospel January of last year. And when we come to chapter 14, you're going to notice that we, we actually turn a corner. And we are now beginning our home stretch, believe it or not, through this gospel. And in and, and chapter 14 and 15, just to give you the literary understanding of it, really beginning here and going on in the next chapter, what we, we see is that Mark begins to focus on the betrayal and the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. And, and what we've, we've come to know that through the years is that we call this the passion of Christ. And passion really is a, a, a great word to describe what we're going to read and study about over the next couple of chapters. Passion, typically when we talk about it, we think of that as how it relates to love. And that's an important part of what passion is, is love. But, but also attached to the idea of passion is also the concept of suffering and sacrifice. And, and, and that makes sense because when you truly love something, you're willing to suffer for it. And you're willing to sacrifice for it. And so the passion of Christ is clearly displayed for us in chapters 14 and 15, and what we see there is that the love that Christ has for sinners and his willingness to suffer and to die for them out of that love converge together. And that's why, that's why we call it the passion of Christ. You'll remember that, that Jesus has already predicted what was going to happen to him three different times in Mark's gospel. The first time in chapter 8, verse 31 the Bible tells us that Mark, that Mark tells us that Jesus began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and three days later rise again. Just one chapter later, in chapter 9, verse 31, he said nearly the same thing. He says, he taught his disciples and said to them, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise on the third day. And then in a, the next chapter, in a more expanded view of what was going to happen, chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, Jesus says, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, scourge him, spit on him, and kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. Three, three different times... Jesus predicted his betrayal and his death. And as we begin and begin on this journey in Mark chapter 14, we recognize that the final countdown toward those events is underway. In fact, the chapter opens on the Wednesday of Passion Week. Just two short days later, it would be Passover. And 
that day would be, we would find out that Jesus ultimately, where he predicted, he would be beaten, he'd be spat upon, the crown of thorns would be crushed upon his head, and he would be nailed to a Roman cross. And it will also be revealed that all of those who surrounded him, the majority of them will all flee away, and he will be left as the Son of God and the Son of Man to die alone. Chapter 14 is the longest chapter in Mark's gospel. As James Edwards has written, the general theme of this chapter is the abandonment of Jesus. And so with that firmly fixed in our mind, let's begin reading in verse 1 of Mark chapter 14 where the Bible tells us this, After two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, Not during the feast lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. And there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. And whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So, he saw it how he might conveniently betray him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who speaks to us through your word. Now we pray that our hearts will be open and our minds will be open and our ears will be attuned to the Holy Spirit speaking to us through the very word that you authored. That through it, you might transform our lives. That you might draw us closer to you. You might help us to see ourselves and recognize what it is that you want us to learn so that we might walk away from this text more like Christ. I pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. As I read this text for you this morning, you may have noticed that the structure of it it's kind of, like a, kind of like that of a sandwich. Verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11 sort of form the bookends of this passage. And that's kind of like the, the pieces of the bread. And then verses 3 through 9 are the center section, and that's, that's sort of like the meat of the sandwich. In fact, you could, you could start reading in verses 1 and 2 and just skip right over to verse 10 and 11, and it would read without any interruption. In fact, just let me do that just so you can hear what it is. After two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, 
lest there be an uproar of the people. Then Judas Iscariot, verse 10, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. You see how it just sort of flows together in a, in a nice package? And, and really, what, what I mean is it, those verses are cohesive. And, and it makes me start to wonder, so why did Mark split them apart? Why did Mark put in the middle of this very cohesive unit that describes how, how it, it, it came upon Judas to go and settle the issue that was being toyed around with the scribes and the chief priests of how to betray Jesus and, and Judas decides to be the one to help them do that. Why did Mark split those two things apart and, and use them as bookends to this, this middle section? Well, I believe that it's a literary decision Mark intentionally used in order to provide us a contrast, in order to compare really two different individuals with two different sets of actions and responses to Jesus. In fact, from verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11, what I believe you see is the first thing I want you to note on your outline this morning. And that is, I believe Mark paints for us a very dark backdrop. A dark backdrop that is filled with scheming, betrayal, and death. That's really what verses 1 and 2 and verse 10 and 11 paint for us. This dark backdrop of scheming, betrayal, and death. Mark tells us there in verse 1, notice that the celebration of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was just two days away. And as we've mentioned before, because that was the case, Jerusalem was just filled with people. They were packed into the city and particularly into the temple. And, and as a result, people had come from all over Palestine in order to celebrate the Passover. And both of these meals, this Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover, were, were meals that pointed to the salvation that the Israelites had experienced when they had been delivered from Egyptian slavery. Passover specifically was a way to remember that it was through the blood of Paschal lambs that had been sacrificed, that blood sprinkled on the doorposts and the lentils of the Jewish homes, that, that the firstborn of Israel was saved when the death angel passed over. This event was a time to come back and to commemorate that and to remember it. But it's also Mark's way, I think, of pointing us to something that was going to happen just two days later when Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, would become the Paschal Lamb, whose blood would save those who place their faith in Him. So I believe that Mark is giving us a foreboding picture of what is to come. But he also tells us this. Evidently, the chief priests and the scribes, well, they weren't really interested in worshiping God and remembering God's deliverance of their ancestors. Rather, they wanted to come together and try to figure out how they could catch Jesus, how they could, they could catch Him by trickery or through deception. They'd been trying this all along. If you remember, previously, delegations had gone to Jesus in an attempt to try to catch him in his words. They'd wanted to ask him about paying taxes to Caesar, and they had hoped to catch him when he, when he had his response about that. They, they also sent those to him who wanted to ask about the resurrection in order to undermine his authority and his religious teachings. They'd been trying all kinds of ways to catch Jesus so that they could get him and they could silence him. But they had thus far been unsuccessful. So they came together once more to try to figure out exactly how they could catch Jesus, but they knew they had to be cautious because all of these crowds who had come from all over Palestine were very sympathetic to Jesus. In fact, outwardly, they expressed their affection to him and their love for him. And so consequently, the chief priests and the scribes didn't want to riot on their hands. So they continued to scheme and to plot. 
They tried to figure out how they could trap Jesus because up to this point, none of their attempts had been successful. But all of that was about to change because Mark tells us that, that the chief priests and the scribes got the best news they could possibly have. One of Jesus' own very close associates had decided to betray him. And he came to them. Judas came to them with an offer to betray his master. I would imagine that those guys couldn't believe their luck. I mean, in fact, in one of the most bitter lines in Scripture, what you read there is that when Judas came and made his offer, the NIV says that they were delighted to hear what he had to say. He made the enemies of Jesus glad. According to Matthew's gospel, Judas asked how much money he could get for betraying his Lord. And we find out that they offered him 30 pieces of silver. Mark tells us from that time forward, Judas sought how he might conveniently betray him. In other words, Judas began from that time forward to find a moment when Jesus was not in and among the big crowds. And when he figured that out, then he could go to the chief priests and the scribes and say, here's where you need to go because... He's by himself. He's just with a small group. So, so in these verses, Mark has, has painted a very dark and foreboding backdrop for us. And he's described the situation facing Jesus. The chief priests and the scribes want him dead. They're scheming. They're plotting against him. Though they do not have a clear plan in place, but then suddenly, one of Jesus' own close associates, Judas, volunteers to betray his Lord. And that is the sad backdrop and these verses actually though then provide us for what Mark is going to tell us in verses 3 through 9 in fact the meat of this Mark and sandwich not only provides a beautiful contrast to Judas's ugly betrayal it also gives us the occasion for why Judas did what he did in fact what I want you to note is the next point on your outline there point number two is just simply this it, it, in contrast to the dark backdrop that we've seen in verses 1 and 2 and 10 and 11, well, in verses 3 through 9, we see a shining example that Mark paints for us. An example of love, devotion, and worship. A shining example of love, devotion, and worship. I have only purchased one diamond in my life. It was a little over 21 years ago, as a matter of fact, and, and I knew nothing then, and I still know nothing now about diamonds. All I knew was to go to the jewelry store that I had chosen and to go in and tell the girl behind the counter, this is my budget. This is all I got, but I really love this woman. So can you help me find a diamond that I can put in a ring that I can ask her to marry me? And I, will, I remember, I think she felt sorry for me. I don't think she took advantage of me. I think she actually felt sorry for me. She took a, a, a black velvet cloth and laid it on top of the counter. And then she went behind and she had this diamond. She says, why don't you take a look at this one? And she laid that diamond on that black velvet cloth. And I thought, wow. That is the most dazzling and beautiful and radiant diamond I had ever seen. Well, what I want you to know is that in verse 3, 
Mark provides us this flashback to a time just a few days earlier to what we've been reading about. And he tells us about this unnamed woman whose example of love, devotion, and affection is dazzling and bright and beautiful in comparison to the betrayal that we see demonstrated by Judas. He, he tells us that Jesus and his disciples are at this, back in Bethany. And they're at this man called Simon the leper's house. We don't know a lot about Simon the leper, but we know that he was no longer a leper. And how can we know that? Well, if he was still leprous, there was no way that he could be hosting a, a meal in his home and people be there. So it was obvious that he was the former leper named Simon. And so that's caused a lot of people to go, well, then if he's the former leper named Simon, then it's quite likely that, that he was one that Jesus had healed of leprosy. And that's very likely to be the case. And in fact, it's also hypothesized that this meal was really a celebratory meal. It was a meal of thanksgiving for what Jesus had done for him. And so Jesus is there. And, and, and so is all of the rest of his disciples. If you look back, you'll find the same incident recorded in John chapter 12. And in John chapter 12, we learn even a little bit more information. In John 12, we learn that not only was Jesus and his disciples there, but also Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And Lazarus' sisters, Martha and Mary, they also were at this meal. And whereas in Mark's gospel, the woman who, who anoints Jesus with this, this aromatic perfume and oil is unnamed, John tells us it was actually Mary, Lazarus' sister. Now, if you can envision the scene, there's important things that I think we ought to note. To begin with, it would have been out of the ordinary for a woman to have come and interrupted a meal unless she had been the one who hosted the meal or who was serving. But what we learn is that Simon the leper was the one hosting the meal and, and John tells us that Martha was the one serving. So Mary, though, is the one who interrupts the meal, but she does it without ever uttering a word. Mark tells us that she brings an alabaster jar. The jar would have likely had a very long, slender neck with a small opening at the top, but it would have sat on a much larger base at the bottom. And that base likely could have held as much as between 10 and 11, 12 ounces of oil. Kent Hughes notes that the alabaster jar itself would have been priceless, likely an heirloom passed down from generations before. But Mark tells us in his gospel that the pure nard that the, the bottle contained was very costly. In fact, D.A. Carson in his commentary writes that the oil got its name from the fact that it had to be extracted from the spike of the nard plant, which is native to North India. And so what you begin to know is, is that just, just the ability to get that oil was a difficult thing. And then to get it from where it was native to in, Italy, in, in India to all the way to Jerusalem, who knows how long ago that had happened, and you can imagine the expense. In fact, the text tells us that the street value of this oil was 300 denarii. Now, to put that in modern terms, one denarius was what was paid to a common laborer for one day's wages. So 300 denarii would have been, we might as well say, a year's worth of salary paid for what, what would have been a, a, a jar of, of spikenard oil. So what we know is that that was a very expensive flask filled with very expensive oil. 
Now, I'll be honest with you, I haven't bought a lot of perfume. And you're thinking, well, you hadn't bought a lot of diamonds either. <laughs> I know perfume is expensive, but can you imagine paying a year's salary for a bottle of perfume? Has anybody ever paid a year's salary for a bottle? If you have, I'd love to meet you. Yet Mary silently brings into the room where Jesus and Simon the leper and Lazarus and all of his disciples are sitting there eating. She brings this jar into the room and all the eyes are fixed on her now and they're watching her. And I can imagine the gasps and the amazed looks that came across their faces as they watched her break open this jar. Notice that she didn't just pour some of it out. She broke the jar in order to get every last bit of it out of there. And she poured that expensive oil on the head of Jesus. John tells us that she also poured it on his feet and that she humbly and worshipfully began to wipe his feet with her hair. It's not recorded that she said anything. Rather, she simply demonstrated her love and her devotion and her worship of her Lord. There's a few notable things that I think we ought to catch. First of all, she did it publicly. She didn't do it privately. She didn't do it in the shadow. She didn't do it under the, under the darkness of night. No, she did it right there in the middle of that room in front of everybody. That is a distinct contrast to what Judas and the scribes and the chief priests were doing when they were meeting in secret trying to figure out how to catch the Lord. Secondly, and this is pretty obvious, that what she did, her act of worship was, was costly. One person that I read said that alabaster jar in and of itself would have been not just a, a, an heirloom, but it would have been a sense her inheritance. I mean, you think about it. In that, in that bottle would have contained a year's worth of salary. She would have had that knowing that if everything else went south in her life, if she lost her ability to do everything else... She still had that jar. She still could sell it and she'd still have a year's worth of income that she could live off of. It was very costly what she did. To our day, we would look at that and say, well, maybe that's the CD that we have in the bank or, or our retirement plan. This would have been her plan. And yet she broke it and used every bit of it on the Lord. I like what one writer has put. Mark reports that she did not pour the oil out but smashed the jar itself which means that the vessel could never be used again, thus symbolizing the totality of the gift. That alerts us to the next aspect of this that I think is noteworthy, and that is when one expresses love and devotion and worship like that, it's often criticized. Verses 4 and 5 says that there were some who were indignant among themselves, saying, why was this fragrant oil wasted? It might have been used... It may have been sold and more than 300 denarii given to the poor. And it says that they criticized her sharply. The ESV translates it and says they scolded her. The NIV translates it that they rebuked her sharply. The Greek word that's used there is one of one snorting one's nostrils. It's the vision that you get of a horse that's angry and snorting itself and pawing the ground. Or that of a bull that has pawing the ground and intent on going and goring the bullfighter. That's the kind of indignation that they had at Mary. And you might ask, well, why? 
Well, it was customary at Passover to give an offering to the poor. And so some had obviously saying that the money that she could have gotten for this bottle of pure spikenard could have been sold and, and she could have sold that and taken the money and it would have made a remarkable gift for the poor. And consequently, in their mind, her act of worship was wasteful. From the perspective of her detractors, pragmatic compassion trumped extravagant, unqualified devotion. What's interesting here, though, is that among Jesus' own disciples, there is the assertion that Mary's gift could have found better use. Whereas she deemed it best to pour out everything that she had of value on Jesus, holding nothing back, literally pouring out all of her security for the present and for the future on him, and in so doing, demonstrating the infinite worth that she placed upon him, her critics, on the other hand, snorted at that, deemed her to be wasteful, indicating that their, truth, their true belief was that Jesus was not worthy of such extravagance. But to Jesus, but for him, she was willing to give everything she had. I should point out that Mark doesn't tell us that Judas was the one leading the, the charge. John does tell us, though, that it was Judas who, who was the first one to blurt out, well, why don't you sell that and give the money to the poor? But then John goes on to give us insight into Judas, and he says that Judas said that not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and he had the money box, and he used to take what was in it. In other words, Judas was angry, not because he really cared about the poor. He was angry because he saw all of that money dripping off the hair and the chin and the feet of Jesus and realize there goes my retirement. There goes money that could have been mine. I think that's probably what sealed the, the deal for Judas. You see, this is a look back to just a few days prior to what we've already looked at. And so when Judas saw that, it incensed him so much that of his own volition, even though we know Satan entered Judas, even though we know that, that, that what he did was, was done out of his own desires, but we see that at the heart of it was greed and self-centeredness. And it caused him to decide that Jesus was no longer worthy of being followed, no longer worthy of his devotion. So four days later, Judas sought out the chief priests and the scribes and offered them his services. So as we've noted, this woman's act of worship was public, it was costly, it was criticized, but then Jesus, he commended it. Verse 6, he says, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. Basically, he says, get off her back. What she's done is a beautiful thing. Now, what's interesting to me is that Judas and those whom he had influenced saw what she did as wasteful, Jesus looked at it and said what she did was beautiful. Notice he also says, you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good, but me you do not have always. Understand, when Jesus says this, he's not, he's not arguing against giving money to the poor. He's not arguing against social issues or anything along those lines. As a matter of fact, the Bible is very clear. If you love God, you will love other people. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. James says, pure and undefiled religion is this, caring for the widows and the orphans, those who cannot care for themselves. The poor of society are always with you, Jesus says. And in fact, it is your responsibility to care for them. In fact, he even goes on to say, whenever you wish, you may do good for them. That just confirms the ongoing responsibility that the people of God have to look out for those who are less fortunate than they are. Nevertheless, Jesus, his statement here, alerts us to the fact that something greater and important is going on. In fact, Jesus reminds him in verse 8 that this woman had done what she had done in order to anoint him beforehand for his burial. Now, some scholars believe that Mary was able to understand the three predictions that Jesus had given earlier, that he would go to Jerusalem and that he would be crucified, and that it was because of that she recognized that he was about to die, and that was why she anointed him, and they believed that she had that full understanding. Others, others will point out the fact that she likely didn't understand everything, but she did desire to anoint him out of her devotion. Either way, either way, Jesus interprets it exactly the way that he desired for it to be interpreted by us, and that is that she anointed him for his burial beforehand. And what we know is, is that what she gave, she actually gave to the poor. You remember Jesus didn't even have a house that he could lay down in and call his own, not a bed that was his own. The only thing that he had was the robe that he had on his back. And the Bible also tells us this, that Jesus Christ became poor so that by his poverty, you and I might become rich through his death. So when, when Mary anointed him, she actually was anointing the poor. Whether she completely understood all of that is really not the point. What we do know is that Jesus said she did what she could. That doesn't mean that she did something small. Rather, what it means is that out of her deep love and affection for Jesus, she gave everything she had to him. She didn't hold anything back. Do you remember when we looked at the story of the poor widow in the temple when she came and all she had was the two very small flakes, really, of copper that were considered coins? She held not even one of those back. She gave them both into the temple treasury. And Jesus said to her, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who had given she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. I want you to know Jesus' commendation of both of these women rested on the fact that they didn't keep anything back. They gave it all to him out of their devotion, out of their love, out of their worship. And then Jesus goes on and he confirms that commendation of this woman in verse 9 by giving her a permanent witness to the gospel. Verse 9, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. I like what Kent Hughes has written. He says, Her story is part of the gospel because she was a demonstration of what happens in a life touched by the Savior of love. Hers truly is a shining example of love, devotion, and worship against such a dark, ugly backdrop of scheming betrayal and death and that leads me to the last point that I want you to see which will go very quickly I want you to know point number three is just simply this it's two enduring testimonies one one of this unnamed woman in Mark that Ju John tells us is Mary and the other was of Judas and just notice the contrast the first one is this she was faithful he was a traitor notice also 
She gave what she could. He took what he could get. In fact, she gave everything she had. He took whatever he could get. Point C is this. She served Jesus as her Savior. He sold Jesus like he was a slave. And finally, she is memorialized forever for her devotion. He is memorialized forever for his betrayal. I dare say I didn't even have to say the name Judas. All I would have to say is the name Judas and immediately your thoughts go to one who is a betrayer. Here, here's what I think these contrasting pictures tell us. It's possible. Listen, it is possible to taste and to, to see the beauty and the wonder of Jesus, yet still not perceive His majesty and His glory and still not perceive your absolute need of His work of grace and mercy in your life. I want you to know that was Judas. Judas was able to walk with Jesus for three years. He heard his sermons. He saw his teaching. He saw his examples that he did. He watched the miracles take place. He was with him all along those dusty roads of Palestine, and yet his heart remained cold to him. It is possible. It is possible to see and even taste and yet not perceive. That's Judas. On the other hand, what these contrasts tell us is that when you do see Jesus rightly, it will drive you to worship Jesus with everything that you have. Mary's worship of Jesus came because she understood that He was more valuable to her than anything or anyone else in her life. To her, Jesus was the most beautiful and most worthy object of worship that exists. And the reason that is the case is because the Bible goes on to tell us that Jesus, as the Lamb of God, would be slain for the sins of the world. On Calvary's cross, His blood would be spilled and God the Father's wrath would be poured out on His own Son. But unless we think that that was some kind of cruel accident, that, that Judas or the chief priests and the scribes or that Satan himself was somehow victorious over Jesus... Do not be deceived. The Bible says that all of that happened according to God's foreordained plan. You see, Jesus willingly laid down His life for sinners like you and me. He willingly suffered the punishment that we deserve so that we can be set free from the penalty of sin. He died not because His enemies won, he died because he gave his life out of love for folks just like you and me. I'm reminded of one of my most all-time, absolute, most favoritists hymn. I don't know how many more accolades I can give to it. When I survey the wondrous cross upon which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, from his hands, and from his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? 
or thorns compose so rich a crown? And then this one. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that was still a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul and my life and my all. Mary didn't know that song. Had she known it, though, I think she would have sung it from the very depths of her soul at the very top of her lungs. Contemplating all of that then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Jesus endured rejection and betrayal and ultimately death to save us from our sins. He is therefore worthy of our extravagant love, devotion, and worship. Here's my question for you this morning as we close. Do you believe that Jesus is worthy of your extravagant love, devotion, and worship? Is he truly your greatest treasure? Is he your joy? Is he your heart's satisfaction? Or does something or someone else occupy first place in your life? Perhaps right now the Spirit of God is convicting you of areas in your life where you have selfishly retained possession and refused His Lordship. Perhaps right now the Spirit of God is convicting you that you have never truly submitted yourself to Him by confessing your sins before Him and acknowledging Him as your Lord and Savior and asking Him to save you. I want you to know opportunity is given to you because today is the day of grace according to the Bible and the opportunity is for you to be able to bow your knee before Him and to humble yourself before Him and ask for forgiveness. And the Bible says that He will save you. Brothers and sisters, when you come to understand the love that He has given you by dying on a cross in your place, then it demands your life, your soul, your all. It is possible to taste and to see and yet not perceive. But oh, once you have, then it demands everything. It demands your extravagant worship. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God, and it's for the people of God. Let's pray together.